Join with me in Daniel chapter 4 and Jeremiah 9. Today's commemoration of 15 years of living in the light of the terrorist attack upon the United States, September the 11th, 2001, has reminded me of a Babylonian ruler who was caught in uh, near Tikrit, Iraq, back in December of 2003. His name was Saddam Hussein, a, an evil, power-hungry autocrat, if there ever was one. When he was captured and caught by the United States Army, uh, Hussein was found in what they call a spider hole. He was a physical wreck. He was a mess. His hair was matted. His beard was dirty. He hadn't been cleaned in quite some time, and he was found in a spider hole. He ruled the nation of Iraq for several decades, and he, by ruling Iraq, found himself in the long line of rulers of that particular geographical region of the earth that formerly was known as Babylon. His predecessor is in Daniel chapter 4, and he went through a similar experience of humiliation by the hand of God. He was humiliated so poorly and so badly that we read of this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 33. It says there, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, not far from the palace where Saddam Hussein built his own. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still on the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times or seven years shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever and forever. When Nebuchadnezzar grew proud, God humbled him with something similar to boanthropy. Boanthropy is a very rare psychological disorder where the individual confuses himself with an oxen or, or with a cow. And he will act and behave that way. He will crawl on all fours. He will eat grass and will make the noises of an oxen or of a cow. He will even moo or will low and behave in that way. There have been a few, but very rare, documented cases, even in the 20th and 21st century, of this rare ailment. Nebuchadnezzar grew incredibly proud of himself, and God humbled him. Now, many do not value even consider humility, but God certainly does. Humility is necessary to walk with God. 
Without humility, there is no serious, sincere, or real walk with God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's necessary also said that we might walk together in peace and love and service. Uh, The Apostle Paul said, With humility of mind, consider others more important than yourself. It's also necessary to walk faithfully and effectively with the world. Humility, that is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, What business do I have judging the world? He wasn't trying to judge the world. He was trying to win the world to Christ. For the church to be in constant criticism of the world would be like an emergency room nurse being in constant criticism of patients who enter through the door refusing to do triage, and just simply complaining about their ailment. I'll say it today, and I'll say it often through the years, and that Beach Haven is not a museum of perfect works of art. Beach Haven is a hospital for sinners, and that's where we stand and that's what we do. There is hope in Jesus Christ, and that hope can be found here, and we magnify that because we believe Jesus can change anyone's life who repents and places faith in the cross and in the resurrection. And so we walk in humility because we need to walk with God. We need to walk with one another in family, friends, neighborhoods, and everywhere we go. And we need to have a faithful and effective walk that makes an impact upon the world. Friends, the world and others may not value may not value humility, but the people of God must and must do so always. And so we can walk faithfully with God when we treasure humility as much as God does. In fact, when God came to the earth, humility was a singular characteristic when he came to the earth in Jesus Christ. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am meek and humble in heart. Mark 10, 45, he didn't use the word humility, but he did indicate humility where he said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Philippians 2, 8, the apostle says that Jesus became obedient, humbled himself, and became obedient even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So how can I treasure humility? Well, let's examine for a moment Nebuchadnezzar's humbling story. And the first uh, part of our examination is the progression. The progression of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling story. Under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon became a mighty, powerful, and beautiful center of cosmopolitan life. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar initiated the building uh, or the, uh, the erection of immaculate gardens. He had a series of four defensive walls built around the city. He engaged in a very rapid and effective and brilliant and impressive building program for the whole city. In fact, his uh, skill and dexterity and administrative leadership in that was so great that they stamped the name of Nebuchadnezzar on nearly all the bricks that had been found in ancient Babylon. If anyone could have claimed greatness without exaggeration in the ancient world, It was Nebuchadnezzar. There's no exaggeration to his greatness, and yet Nebuchadnezzar took credit for it himself. In verses 1 through 3, he really starts at the end, and he gives the conclusion of his experience of humiliation with something like boanthropy 
in verses 1 through 3. It says in verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He sounds almost like the Apostle Paul in his letters. I thought it good to declare to you, to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. The boanthropy, the escape of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in the previous chapter, Daniel's interpretation of his dream in chapter 2, and then Daniel and his friends' uh, superior appearance and performance when they resisted the king's delicacies and ate their own Hebrew diet according to Levitical law back in chapter 1. These are wonders and signs from the Most High God that he worked for Nebuchadnezzar. He goes on to say in verse 3, How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar here is exalting God with the Word, much like an evangelist would. There are many who believe this signifies, in other passages in this chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar was converted to the God of Israel. His theology is not entirely pure or complete. He's got some growth to do, but there are some who believe he's been converted. And that's because of the vision he had in verses 4 through 27. Let's read the vision itself in verses 10 through 16, and then Daniel gives the interpretation later. He says in verse 10, These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and a, the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. Uh, the beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw the vision of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, let the, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times or seven years pass over him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did not understand this vision, and so he called his enchanters, his magicians, his counselors and sorcerers in, and as always, they were terribly disappointing, and that world happens to be and left him unfulfilled and still in the dark. And so he calls Daniel in. And Daniel, as always, gives him the correct interpretation of his dream. He said, with great trembling in his heart and brokenness in his spirit, he said, King, I sure hope that this vision is for your enemies and not you. But indeed, it's for you. You are that great tree. And because of the pride of your heart, God is going to chop you down. But he's going to surround you with a band. And in the meantime, he's going to drive you into the fields to suffer something like boanthropy. You, you will eat the grass like an ox or a cow. And you will dwell there for seven years is what you will do. And 
nevertheless, after that time, when you learn that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms and the affairs of men and women, then God will restore you to your kingdom. Again, He has banned, He's put a strong band around you so that your judgment is limited. God will not go to the full extent of His judgment or His law with you. But He will bring you down so that one day after you learn that He's the Most High God, He can lift you up. And that's verses 17 on to 27. Well, his humiliation we read about, some suspect that Nebuchadnezzar was hidden in a courtyard or out in an isolated field and that his servants guarded him so that onlookers could not see him. In fact, we probably would not know that Nebuchadnezzar suffered from something like boanthropy unless Nebuchadnezzar had told us. In fact, this is written from his own hand. The only place in the Bible that we know of, uh, except one place in the New Testament, where someone like Nebuchadnezzar wrote anything in the scripture. And so apparently he was hidden in an isolated field or a courtyard for the seven years when he was away from the throne. Apparently Daniel and others took care of the affairs of the kingdom for the seven years he was suffering from this ailment that was like boanthropy. And then in verse 34 through 37, he is restored. He experiences a restoration. And it's remarkable what he says to the new atheists. They would be quite flabbergasted at this. But it says twice that his understanding returned to him. Uh, Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. Uh, Verse 34, my understanding returned to me. And God exalted him even higher in verses 36 to 37. Read there with me in verse 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down, and Nebuchadnezzar would know that personally. Now that's the progression of the story. God imposed humility on Nebuchadnezzar. And if one of the greatest and strongest rulers of all the centuries and millenniums could not escape the imposition of humility upon him by the hand of God. It is not likely that we will escape either. That's the progression of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling story. But then there are some principles that arise from it about humility. And that is the source of humility or from what humility grows. Humility in the first place grows from God's rule. And this is emphatic in the text. In fact, you will find in verse 3 and 17 and 25 and 34 and 35 similar theological statements about the rule of God that should produce a gush of humility in the heart and life of all those who trust His rule. Verse 3 says it's everlasting. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, how great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. That means despite what appears to our eyes, despite our experience, God is always ruling. There is never a moment when God is not sovereign. Somehow, some way, 
God is always exercising his rule. Now listen, the evidence that you read of and see and perhaps experience may not lead you to that conclusion, but you need to understand something. God doesn't call you and direct you to understand this. He calls you to trust it. And there's a far difference. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not upon your own understanding. If you do not see how it is that God is ruling through every experience and every event, it may be that your understanding is not quite enlightened yet, and it may not be until you get to the other side and see Him face to face. But the text says His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion or rule is from generation to generation. God is completely sovereign, and His rule is everlasting. But then in verse 17, it is current. This decision was by the decree of the watchers, Nebuchadnezzar says, the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. And we sure do know that here, don't we? That the Most High rules, present tense, God is currently ruling over all. And, and that means this, God has the same expectations of us that he's had of his people forever. God has the same expectations for every breathing human being as he did in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, in the days of Moses, in the days of Solomon, in the days of Isaiah, the same expectations he did in the days of Jesus. Nothing of God has changed, though we have changed the calendar. God remains the same. His rule is current and up to date. But then in verse 25, he says that God's rule is given. Look with me in verse 25. They shall drive you for men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation of the dream. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven, tier, seven times or years shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. God is Lord over the thrones and God is Lord over the elections of the nations. Let me assure you, the election that will take place November the 8th will fit the narrative of every biblical story when a king was exalted, a ruler was exalted, or replaced. The Bible does not become irrelevant November the 8th. Nor does it become irrelevant when the new president is inaugurated in January. It will fit the narrative of the Word of God. And let me assure you that if God noticed the rule and the details of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, He certainly will notice every detail of the work and administration of the president in Washington, D.C. Nothing will escape His notice. It is given. And then verse 34 and 35, it is inevitable. Look there what he says. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one 
can restrain his hand or say to him, well, what have you done? No one can legitimately do that with God. God's rule is inevitable. The day after our presidential election in November, nothing of God's rule will change. Jesus Christ will still be Savior and Lord on His way to returning to the earth to make the kingdoms of the world the kingdoms of the Lord and Christ. His rule and His plan will continue as if the election day never happened. Nothing will be diminished of God. Nothing at all. Humility then grows from God's rule, but then it also grows from His discipline. Verse 31 and 32 made that very clear, how Nebuchadnezzar suffered something like boanthropy. Now, there is a certain way that God sought to discipline Nebuchadnezzar, and it was progressive. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, he began an entry-level form of discipline. Nebuchadnezzar said, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And so it stirred his spirit. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, he had another dream that troubled him. And so he's gone from being troubled to being terrified. And so the pressure from God is increasing. God got his attention, and God gets our attention as well when we're struggling with arrogance and we do not value humility. God communicates or God disciplines people, I have found, usually in one of three areas. One may be their spirit, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing here. He's been troubled in chapter 2. He's now terrified in chapter 4. And so when a person has a spirit that is upset and is restless and cannot find any peace, oftentimes that's the way God is getting that person's attention because he wants to direct them, speak to them, or they're under conviction. They just simply can't get any peace, and that's the way Nebuchadnezzar is here. Sometimes God disciplines through the Spirit, but also He disciplines through relationships. A corrective word from a parent or a confrontive word from a spouse. It could be something from a pulpit or from a Sunday school classroom. It could be merely walking down a hallway and overhearing a comment that God puts an arrow at the end of and penetrates our heart. Some kind of relationship uh, is a, becomes a tool and vehicle and megaphone and microphone and PA system for God to communicate to us. And then sometimes God disciplines us through failures. Whenever we go off our own way, in fact, I would say to you, we go off our own way. The best thing God could do for us under those circumstances is let us fail and not let us succeed at our own way. God does discipline. God does discipline the arrogant, and I need to assure you, because He's Lord and sovereign and exalted above all, God never seeks the permission or the input of those He disciplines. He is not running a democracy. I think that's the best form of government for the people. But for God, He is entirely theocratic. He is a benevolent, benevolent, loving, all-good dictator. And God will do in our lives precisely what He wants to do. And God will never seek the input, permission, or the acquiescence of any person with whom He deals. That should produce some humility in us. His rule, His discipline. And then, you may not have seen it here in the text, but, God's, uh, but humility grows from God's grace. God was marvelously gracious to Nebuchadnezzar in this text. Nebuchadnezzar experienced grace in several places. One happened to be uh, God's servant, Daniel. 
Look with me in verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time after hearing the king's dream, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. And so Daniel is reticent and hesitant to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar the heartbreaking interpretation of this particular dream. Daniel had to deliver bad news from God to Nebuchadnezzar, but he did not enjoy it. And so what you find here in Daniel is a display of God's desire and preference for love, compassion, forgiveness, restoration over his desire to judge. And so he sees that in Daniel. And in verse 27, look what happens here. Daniel says, uh, after telling the king the meaning of the dream, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel gets specific and particular in the royal court. He puts his hands in his lives by addressing this greatest of monarchs in all the earth. Daniel cares for Nebuchadnezzar and his walk with God. He cares deeply about him enough to tell him the truth. J. Vernon McGee comments on this and tells the story of when he uh, was informed by his oncologist that he had cancer. The oncologist comes in and says, Dr. McGee, I just have to tell you, and I, I can't sugarcoat it, I've got to tell you the truth, and if I don't tell you directly and flatly what you've got, you will never trust me again. And he delivered the news about his cancer. I would say to you, much of our world has that same sentiment. They may not like what you say about Jesus, but if you don't tell them straight, they will never trust you again. That doesn't mean you have to be abrasive. Daniel wasn't in verse 19. That doesn't mean you have to be rude or obnoxious or enjoy bad news. But it does mean we've got to be entirely transparent with the people. And that is a value here at Beach Haven. We're going to be true to the Word of God and deliver the news as it's found in the Word and let God handle the fallout. And so Nebuchadnezzar experienced God's grace in Daniel, but he also experienced it in God's patience. Verse number 29, he did not come around when Daniel warned him. And in fact, in verse 29, God did not implement the judgment until 12 months later. Nebuchadnezzar ignored the warning of Daniel for 12 months, and only after 12 months did God implement the judgment of the dream and its interpretation. God is not in a hurry to judge or discipline. He would rather save and forgive, but mercy loves delays and gives people time to repent and place faith in Christ and get right with God. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar experienced God's grace in Daniel and in patience, and then he experienced it in God's reach. He experienced it in God's servant, God's patience, and God's reach. God is consuming an awful lot of time and space on the pages of Scripture by reaching a Gentile who's outside the covenant promises of Israel. In fact, nearly all of the dialogue that you find in the book of Daniel is between Jew and Gentile. You don't find dialogue between Jews. 
All of the dialogue from the Jews goes to the Gentile because God is seeking to reach the Gentiles by placing them in Babylon, by placing Jews in Babylon and reaching them. So even though we have sinned, and even though we live in a world that is sin-sick but not yet sick of sin, God is attempting to reach the world, and He does so through people. And that's the whole point of October the 23rd. We'll have John Reed here for Sunday morning and Sunday evening and give you the opportunity to pray for and invest in your friends and get them here under the anointed preaching of the gospel of Christ when John Reed comes October 23rd. And for that reason, we pray hard for friends. We make a list of those who worry us spiritually. We invite them to come. And let me say, if you've ever made a friend, if you've ever prayed for anyone, if you've ever invited anyone to anything, you can be effective with October 23rd when John Reed is here. Well, that happens to be the principles of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling story. But then I want us to look finally at the practice or some application of Nebuchadnezzar's story. How then can I get humble from this text? How can I hurry and get humble? First, hurry after God. Hurry after God. C.S. Lewis said, In God, you come up against someone who is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. And as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on people and things. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. Namely, him who is immeasurably superior. Now, six times in this one chapter, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel refer to God as the Most High God. It is the emphasis and the point of the whole book of Daniel, brilliantly summarized here in chapter 4. He is above all, and that's how we know him. Chapter 4, verse 17, look what he says. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So God, the Most High God, sets over the kingdoms the lowest of people. Do not be surprised whenever monarchs or candidates happen to be from the lowest moral quality of a nation. That's what the text says in verse number 17. God is Most High. Humans are most low. Let me ask you a question. Those who know you the best, I wonder, what do they say about you? What is the first thing that comes to their mind when describing you? Well, that person is attractive or intelligent or educated or opinionated or grumpy or busy or some other quality. Well, what's the first one? May I say to you, I am desperate in my heart that those who know me the best will say, that man knows God. That man knows God. In the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, 
exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. I, I hope that a number of earthly blessings will come your way. I, I hope that you'll be impressive in 10 million ways. But the number one impression I hope that we will all make is that we know God and knowing Him and walking with Him and displaying the bounty and the majesty of His character happens to be the number one priority and fire in our hearts and lives. Hurry and know God. Hurry after God. But then hurry after counsel. Nebuchadnezzar called together all of his counselors in verses 6 through 9. And they were, they were pitiful. They disappointed him. They were hopeless. But then finally, as in chapter 2, he goes back to Daniel. And he finds counsel and truth there. And because he listened to the painful, uncomfortable counsel of Daniel, he was better off at the end than he was in the beginning. Hurry after counsel. Yield yourself to godly counsel. Invite people into your life that you might, on a bad day, confuse with the meanest people in the earth. People who will tell you straight whether you like it or not. People whose counsel is true and people whose counsel you appreciate, even though their counsel sounds like someone's ripping a board off of an old wall. Invite into your life those who will shoot straight with you. It will humble you to know People who know more about life than you do. So hurry after God and hurry after counsel and then hurry after integrity. Always be willing to accept correction. And this is what Daniel is urging in verse number 27. Always be willing to accept correction. Invite it. Treasure it. Appreciate it. Ernest Hemingway said, We are merely apprentices in this life and none of us becomes a master. We've got to be those who have a heart then for integrity. And then, hurry after sensitivity. I don't know if you follow Nebuchadnezzar carefully throughout the book of Daniel in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, but he is, of course, the prominent ruler in all four chapters. And I believe God has progressively been trying to get his attention to turn him to himself. In chapter 1, he does so lightly because he's got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who in chapter 1, verse 8, will not eat of the king's delicacies. They insist, as Jews who've been deported from their homeland, on observing obscure Levitical laws about their diet. And they will not compromise even these obscure dietary laws. And they then, after being tested 10 days, they appear stronger and better looking, and their academic performance and their capabilities in royal matters is far beyond. In fact, the text says, 10 times better than all those around him. Well, that should have been a word to Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it. So in chapter 2, God sends him a dream that troubles him about future kingdoms. His would last 70 years, and other kingdoms would last longer or a little shorter. And Daniel interprets that dream and as a result elevates Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into an inner court and inner circle. But even then, Nebuchadnezzar does not get it. He didn't get it with the light discipline of chapter 1. He didn't get it with the troubling vision about something way off in the future in chapter 2. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is publicly humiliated. He throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace because they will not bow before his image. 
They will not bow. And they uh, go into the fiery furnace, and there is a fourth one that appears with them that Nebuchadnezzar says appears to be the Son of God. The same term used for the Son of Man in chapter 7, verse number 13 a pre-incarnate, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus. And he saves them. They are in the fire, but not only are they not burned, their hair is not singed, and when they exit the fiery furnace, their clothing does not even bear the smell of smoke. And so Nebuchadnezzar quickly has to make a proclamation before these thousands that are there that have bowed before the idol and says, do not speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he is publicly humiliated because they violate his demand and God comes through and helps him. Well, he won't listen to the light discipline of chapter 1. He'll not listen to the a little more intense discipline of chapter 2. He will not listen to the public humiliation of chapter 3, and so God comes after him full force in chapter 4, and he suffers something like boanthropy, acting like an ox or a cow for seven years of his life. Nebuchadnezzar was thick-skulled, and it took an awful lot to get his attention and to bend his will. You know, God does it with some people. He'll start off lightly with them. Their heart will be unfulfilled. They'll be, they'll be empty. They'll suffer some disappointments. And then maybe a person will come and confront them. My plea to you is that if you're outside the will of God, listen to what God is saying. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, but He shouts in our pains. And it could be God is moving upon you with a, with a restless spirit, an unfulfilled heart, an empty heart, some disappointments, even some confrontations that you've recently had. I need to let you know you need to be very, very careful of underestimating His zeal for humility. And for people to bow before Him, God will not give up until you've bowed it all before His Son. If He's speaking, listen and listen now. God is serious about getting you humble before Him and His people. In fact, it gets worse. There's no way to take the jagged edges off of this. All oh, this is terribly unpleasant. There's no bucket of sunshine in the pulpit this morning. You need to understand, there is no way to take the, regu- the serrated edges off of the knife of God's discipline. It gets worse in Proverbs 29.1. He who stiffens his neck after much reproof shall be broken suddenly and that without remedy. God is serious about humility before Him. And the sensitivity that we need to develop is the sensitivity that can discern His voice at the very beginning of the process when He lightly moves upon us, and at least when it grows a little more intense so that we do not suffer like Nebuchadnezzar. The worst display of pride and perhaps the most offensive, is thinking that I'm okay with God when I'm not. That I'm okay with God when I have not trusted the cross and resurrection of Christ. That somehow my virtue and my religious works and my charitable spirit and all is enough to please God. The reason that's so insulting to heaven is that that means that Jesus Christ was foolish and that the cross was a horrible abominable mistake. If we are okay with God, then we are left to explain the cross. Well, may I ask, 
Why did the cross happen if we're so good? Why did the cross happen if we are so virtuous? Why did the cross happen? Why, Why was the agony there? Why was there the blood? Why was there the separation between the Father and the Son? Why was the earth darkened for those hours? If we are okay with God, please explain to me, did God make a mistake? Was Jesus foolish in insisting on going to the cross? The reason, beloved, the reason that Jesus bled on the cross is that we are not okay with God on our own. And we cannot be. We we can no more please God with virtue and works than a corpse in a cemetery can. We've got to be made alive by the Spirit and repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. And a dying psychiatrist realized this one day. He had immigrated from Spain and drifted from God to the point where he no longer believed in him. But then he contracted cancer, a very aggressive bone cancer, was in the hospital and slowly dying from it. A young pastor fresh out of seminary came and began to share the good news of Jesus with him and told him, you have been wildly successful over the head of your department in the hospital as a psychiatrist. You have written, you have published, you have healed, You've been wildly successful, and now you're not ready to meet God. He shared the gospel with him and encouraged him to come to Christ, but there was no response from this man. Well, the pastor left, and in the meantime, before he could return, spontaneously, his bones grew so weak that spontaneously his leg broke because of the cancer. And they rushed him into surgery, but before he got in, and he didn't, he didn't uh, come out of recovery. He passed away. But before he went to surgery, he wrote the pastor a note. And he quoted the Apostles' Creed in Spanish because that's how his mother had taught it to him in Spain. He said, I believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ His Son. And he went on through the Apostles' Creed. And then at the end of that, he put a little tag, a little prayer that he wanted to inform the pastor of. And here's his prayer. Jesus, I hate all my sins. I've not served or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb, me with you. Do you think you could whisper similar words to God today? I hate my sins. I'm ashamed that I've been proud before you. I trust only the cross and resurrection. That's where all of my hope is. I have none other. And I yield my life to you. Would you please take me as I am? He promises he will. Ask it shall be given. Seek you shall find. Knock the door shall be opened to you. One day a very wicked man prayed, God be merciful to me a sinner. Perhaps the simplest prayer in all the Bible. And Jesus said, that man went to his home justified. And you can be cleansed today. He assures you, if you will humble yourself before God, hate your sin, hate your pride, but trust only the death and resurrection of Christ. And we want to help you with that this morning. We're going to sing a song, and our staff will be standing here on the front. And if you need help with that decision, we want to encourage you to come and seek help from them. We've helped thousands of people through the years, almost 60 years here at Beach Haven, and God's about ready to do a great work in your life as you humble yourself before Him. Others of you have, uh, you know Christ, and you're ready to become part of Beach Haven. 
uh, in our church family. Would you come? There may be some other needs. We want to invite you to come. We're available. We want to help. There's no magic in walking the aisle. We just want to give you the help that you need today. And I want to ask you to quickly stand with me. I'm going to pray. And we're going to ask you to come. Father, we bless you for the truth of your word. And I want to pray that your spirit would work in us to where you would be pleased with the degree and the progress and humility that we have today. We ask you for all the help of heaven to do that. Dear God, without you, we're corpses. But thank you that with you we are alive in Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for that help. And we bless you for it. We honor you. We thank you that you're eager to come through today. We thank you that in talking to you, we're not overcoming reluctance. We're not whispering words to a God who has to be convinced to love. We're talking to a God who slaughtered his own son at the cross for our sins and then raised him from the dead and has been giving his presence in grace to millions upon millions, even billions, down through to millenniums. Would you do it again here today? In Jesus' name.